Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Sam Altman. Sam Altman. Sam Altman. Sam Altman. Sam Altman. Sam Altman. Sam Altman is leading OpenAI again. A superstar CEO on one side, a disgruntled board on the other, caught in the middle with 770 employees and the future of artificial intelligence. That was a crazy week that we've just seen. So why did OpenAI fire Sam Altman? Why is he back as CEO in just five days? This idea that AGI had been created. Most of it is the direct result of an ideological schism. There's those that believe that AI or AGI will potentially uh, be the end of us, whether it is AGI itself or whether it is through abuse by big corporate companies taking control of the world. And then there's those that believe that we should progress as fast as possible because this technology will save humanity. What are your viewpoints in respect to how it evolves from this point today? The question is, where where, where does this uh, leave us and what, what does it mean? Well... That was a crazy week that we've just seen. And I thought it was it was a good opportunity to jump on before we dive into the full breadth of the podcast to capture what's what the latest update is. So as we're recording this now, Sam has now gone back to OpenAI. So yeah, let's let's get your view on on this kind of merry-go-round that we've we've just witnessed. Well, it's actually funny. I, I just get a message from one of my oldest and best friends who is actually a developer, and I, I talk basically everything that happens in AI land, I discuss with him. And and when the first you know, on Friday night, Saturday night, when uh, when everything first happened, I was talking to him and I said to him, I'll, I'll wager that Sam will be back. I wager Sam will be back. And I have to admit that uh, by the time it was, I think, Sunday night, I was starting to worry, <laughs> starting to worry that I'd lose the wager because at that point it was announced by Satya Nadella that he was going to move to Microsoft. And at this point I thought, okay, maybe, maybe I was wrong. But then of course in... Uh, in an awesome turn of events next morning, he did he did make it back. So I turned out to be right about that. My thoughts? Well, first of all, I think that although, you know, but it, by now most of the, the initial conspiracy theories have died down. But one of the things that I noticed was that everybody was very quick to jump on this idea that AGI had been created. And this was the, the big reason that Ilya Sutskifer got rid of, of Sam. I said from day one, and I still maintain that I had nothing to do with it, even though now there's, of course, a very serious narrative going around about Q-Star and what does Q-Star entail, and everybody's trying to figure out what it really means. 
the the main thoughts around it now is that it has to do with can you explain to me step by step or or tell me your uh, your 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 process step by step so it's it's an an iteration on that kind of method that technology and what i've seen about it is very very promising and interesting because it would mean that if Elias Sutskiver and the team have actually come up with a way to allow large language models transformers to do logic and to basically ace any math test which is crazy because that would be a massive step towards AGI. That's a fact. But I don't think that this had anything to do with uh, with Sam's initial kick and then uh, return. I still maintain that most of it is the direct result of an ideological schism between, well, if you really bring it down to the simplest form, the boomers and the doomers. There's those that believe that AI or AGI will potentially uh, be the end of us, whether it is AGI itself or whether it is through abuse by big corporate companies taking control of the world. And then there's those that believe that we should progress as fast as possible because this technology will save humanity. And although that's a little bit of a simplification, and I'm not really convinced that Sam is all the way in the boomer in the boomer corner, because that's what people now say, like uh, Sam is a boomer and he just wants to go and get all the guardrails off and go as fast as we can. I, I don't think that's the case, but I do think that he's willing to go much, much faster than, for example, Ilya Sutskifer and maybe Adam D'Angelo were, were comfortable with. Uh, definitely Mira Murati was not comfortable with that either. And I think that that is what initially led to, to the situation. But I think that, you know, we've seen what happened. I think that Ilya Sutskifer throughout the weekend became to realize that whatever he was trying to do to make things better was actually making things worse. And that's what turned him around. And I think that's what turned the whole situation around. Although I did hear that uh, Emmett Shear actually played a significant role in Sam's return because of the questions he asked. And I was quite positively surprised by that because initially I was kind of worried that this guy who I thought had a massive lack of knowledge in the field was actually coming in to be the CEO. And I even tweeted something to him or X'd, I don't know what you call it these days, but I said something like, I really think that somebody of your stature should have known better than to accept the job. But I was a little quick with my conclusions because although he had said yes to being open to accepting it, he didn't actually just accept it. And so he did what I thought he should have done. He played a very significant role in the conversation and, and was the grown up in the room. And I think that together with such an Adela's uh, very strategic decisions is ultimately what, what saved the day and i think this all for the best so that was a very long answer <laughs> i guess like before we open it up to the rest of the podcast which this will link into what what are your viewpoints in respect to how it evolves from this point today well on the one hand i would say that there is a possibility for this strengthening open ai in the team and the relationship between open ai and microsoft in a way that is beneficial for the development of ai and what i mean by that is that i kind of you know, you can draw the, the parallel. If you break a bone and it heals, it will heal stronger than it originally was, right? That's usually how that goes. Because the scar tissue is stronger than the original. That could happen because I think that Sam Oldman is the kind of CEO that could pull that off. He is not Steve Jobs. And I really want to emphasize that. He's not Steve Jobs. He's not Elon Musk. He does not have an oversized ego. And therefore, he would be capable of mending things that they would have never been able to mend. And if you look at Steve Jobs, for example, coming back to Apple, he got rid of everybody that ousted him initially, right? And and Elon Musk would have 100% done the same thing uh, if he'd been in the same situation. That's that's how we know. So I think that that's, that's interesting. However, having said that, I think that the whole situation did kind of weaken the the kind of fail-safe that was built into the company structure for OpenAI. 
right? Because before all of this happened, the way it was set up was that the board was in a nonprofit, even though it had a for-profit, you know, substructure, so to speak, where investors could step in. And the whole situation was such that the board would always be at odds with the shareholders. And this was a, a, a very conscious, complicated, and not, you know, standard, but, but conscious setup to maintain that kind of control over the whole thing. And I think that that structure, I don't know, I don't know exactly what the new legal structure is at this point, but I'm pretty sure that some things have changed. And even if it's just the, the board members that have changed, I think that we might now have a, a situation where the investors, the shareholders, and in this case, that's mainly such an Adela Microsoft, will have far more influence over the company. Uh, and it all really now comes down to Sam Altman's leadership. So in that sense, I'm not sure whether this was a good thing, but that remains to be seen. Time will tell. Yeah, definitely. So I guess like without further ado, let's dive into the main body of the podcast. What a crazy weekend that was. That doesn't, I mean, that is just an understatement of the year, isn't it? I mean, we're literally looking at a soap opera uh, taking place in real time. That's crazy. Yeah, no, it's definitely crazy. It's before we kind of dive into that, because I definitely want to touch on that. Let's start with like who you are, what you do and why. Yeah, of course. My name is Aragorn. I normally, I never start with my first name, but I guess I'm, I'm still so confused about everything that's going on today. I'm a futurist, which people have a lot of connotations with that word and a lot of feelings because it's being used left and right by everybody who has an opinion on the future these days. But I worked at LinkedIn, worked at Oracle, spent my, most of my career in tech after spending most of my time in university studying things like international relations, Islam, the history of the Middle East. But I've also been working with any kind of new technology that came out as it relates to computers, computation, artificial intelligence since 1987, I think, or 1988 when I got my first Commodore 64. However, it's always been a hobby for me. And when I left university, I just wanted to get a job. I wanted to be useful, <laughs> like Arnold Schwarzenegger's book, be useful. That was, yeah. that was what I really wanted. That's why I dropped out. So I went to work in tech because people basically told me, Aragorn, you know, you're a nerd, you're a geek on one side, but you're really good at articulating and explaining and talking to other people, making them understand what it's all about. So that's what I built my career on. Although secretly, I just wanted to be thinking about the future, thinking about the newest technologies and how they might impact the path that humanity takes through history. And then a few years ago, there was this little thing called the COVID lockdowns. And that actually made me basically go bankrupt with my sales business, my social selling business, which I'd started after leaving LinkedIn. And that forced me to reconsider what I was doing. And I ended up starting a new business online with a friend I knew from gaming, which was an online academy for Unreal Engine. And the company's called VR Division. And ultimately, that didn't really work out. But that led to me being hired by one of the clients I'd brought in, which was a Web3 metaverse company in the Netherlands, where I was head of marketing. And that kind of kickstarted me finally into what I really feel has been my destiny, which is my purpose in life. And that is to be working every day, trying to figure out where we're headed, where technology is is taking us. I, I envision technology like a big river, a stream. And although we are creating that stream it is, and, and we make it grow, it's also 
on that very same stream, we are all in the boat together as humanity and it's taking us somewhere. And I'm trying to figure out where is it taking us? What's around the next curve and how can we, you know, make the best of that? So yeah, that's me in, in a nutshell. That was probably a three minute nutshell. <laughs> no, no, this is, this is good. This is good. And, but talking about where technology is taking us, obviously we're, we're recording this on the 20th of November and we've just landed on possibly one of the most crucial moments in AI specifically in respect to Sam Altman and what happened open AI and like today, Monday, he's now at Microsoft, but yeah, like let's maybe walk over your views and, and take us to what led to that separation in your opinion. And also kind of where do, what, what's the implications of it moving over to Microsoft now? And like, yeah, man, it's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. Well, maybe a good place to start is with debunking, or at least what I consider to be the most crazy theories out there that I, I simply don't believe hold any any foundation in reality. So there's there's rumors that this was all about fame and fortune, that Sam Altman, you know, just got lost and it all went to his head. I think that's absolute nonsense. There are rumors that it was all a coup, that Sachin Adela played out because he wanted to kind of take over the open AI crew. Uh, I think that's also absolutely ridiculous. No uncertain terms here. There's, of course, the 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 initial idea that was going around X and online was that they achieved AGI, artificial general intelligence, and that this is what led to the schism between Ilya and Sam. I, I think that's another absolute impossibility at this point, or at least very intractable. I mean, if you give it the statistical probability, I would say that the probability is less than, than 1%. There's some other theories out there, but my personal take is, is really that it comes down to emotions and ideology. It's been very clear for me for a while now from reading a lot about Sam and reading a lot about Ilya and reading a lot about the start of OpenAI, that both of them have a very deeply ingrained belief that artificial general intelligence is something that can be achieved, even though most AI scientists would have been very skeptical about it even just a year, a few years ago. And they don't just believe it can be achieved, they believe it can be achieved within one to two decades. Yeah. And they started about, you know, seven years ago, I think. They're united in that belief. I mean, in fact, Sam Altman made it a requirement for everybody who would work at OpenAI to be a believer, which is kind of weird if you think about it, because he was basically basically hiring a cult. But but that's that's a fact. I think where where Ilya, which is who whom is arguably the most important and most genius prodigy scientist in in AI and machine learning in the world right now, and Sam really differ, I think, is on the potential risks along the way to getting to our AGI. And I think initially they were kind of aligned on that, but I think that over the past year with the absolutely mind-boggling rise of ChatGPT to prominence, I think that they've, they've separated in terms of ideology. It's my belief that Ilya is, is, is scared very deeply and this is what made him decide to do what he did over the last few days, which led to this situation. He's scared very deeply that we're going too fast, that the guardrails are off, and that big tech will try to take this technology and use it to their own benefit, to the detriment of most of society. And I think that down the line, he also believes that if we go down that path, AGI will be created without the necessary precautions put in place. 
So in that sense, he's very much, I think, in the same camp as uh, Mustafa Suleiman, for example, from Inflection, formerly DeepMind. And even Jeffrey Hinton, maybe, who, who's really in the doom corner now and says, you know, I'm preparing for the end of time. Sam Altman, on the other hand, is, I think, just a, a lot more optimistic. Sam Altman believes that we can do this and that to do this right, there needs to be one party that is leading the way, that is that is literally far ahead of the competition. And he believes that the way to getting ahead of the competition and staying ahead of the competition is by gaming the system and using the capital and money that is available today through, for example, Microsoft to achieve those goals. And I think that Sam Altman really, really believes, and this is something that I feel is confirmed in, for example, the way the shareholder agreements were set up for OpenAI. He believes that once AGI is achieved, and he thinks that this will go very rapidly, I'm pretty sure he believes we'll have a fast takeoff scenario where AGI will very rapidly develop into super intelligence. And past that point, all bets are off. He re I, I really think that he believes that once that happens, the world will be reshaped. There will be a kind of singularity moment, just like Kurzweil talks about, just like you know, many more scientists are now finally starting to take serious, where beyond which we simply cannot fathom what the world will look like, what society will be like, because everything that we take for granted right now will be swept away in, in a matter of days, weeks, maybe months, but you know that, that's it. And so he doesn't really believe that it really matters which technology or which company will at that point be the one funding the technology, because once this technology takes off, it doesn't really matter anymore. And I think that this is where they fundamentally have this ideological schism. And I think that is what drove Ilya to try and pull on the reins, so to speak, to kind of give off a signal and a sign and take control back and, and, and try to guide everything back into this kind of non-profit, a slow, responsible kind of prog progress where scientists were in the loop and it wasn't about pushing out products. Uh, and rather than talking to Sam about that and trying to make his, his belief, you know, better understood, or maybe he did try that and it didn't work. I think he, he, he desperately went ahead and worked with the rest of the board, I, I guess now former board, I'm not sure, to, to take control of the company. And But I also feel that he, you know, from the latest messages, he seems to really regret it because ultimately I think we can all agree that if that was his goal, if that was his intention, then in fact, the only thing that he achieved was to make everything worse. I mean, he basically realized his own worst nightmare, I'd say, rather than... Uh, then, and, and I think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that the board, as it was when they made their decision, completely underestimated the sentiment around Sam Altman, his position, his character, his ability to lead the world uh, in this endeavor, and his support, both from inside the company and from outside, from such an Adela, for example. So that leads us then to the final part of your question. It's a very long answer, and I'm sorry for that, but I'm just trying to be comprehensive. Your question is, where, where, where does this uh, leave us and what, what does it mean? Well, I've seen online a lot of people say, well, now Microsoft is in full control with no nonprofit oversight, right? And this is true. In OpenAI, the board kind of had this very special company structure where they, they had oversight and some, some measure of control. And no matter how many shares the shareholders had, you know, they still had power over the brakes. Now that's gone. If you're in Sam Altman's camp, then you don't think that really matters, and it's all fine, and we're we're going to be just uh, going to be just peachy. But if you're in Ilya's camp, then I would say that there's a lot to worry about now, 
and it will all come down to such an Adela's leadership of Microsoft together with Sam Altman. Are, are these conscientious, conscientious, are these conscientious men? Are these decent people? Because I think the two of them now hold the future of humanity in their hands. At least that's what it seems like for the moment. Yeah, and I definitely believe that to be the case. Because the way that I look at it is, uh, yeah, like I'm with Ilya in respect to his viewpoint on when AGI is achieved, that kind of the the intelligence is far superior as to what human intelligence is. So it almost becomes, I remember seeing a, I think it was a Guardian. I think actually you posted it and, and I was reshared it the other day, earlier today. And yeah, he kind of did that analogy between the level of intelligence is kind of like human versus canine and we become the canine. And, you know, like it's not that they, if AGI was achieved, it's not that they would necessarily dislike us. It's just, we become more of a kind of a pet association. We're, we're not on the same level playing field. So when it comes to decision-making, um, largely we're not really consulted and that's, that's the risk that we can get to if, if that takes place. So like when you look at, look about the the rise of AI and the deciding points in respect to the values that we attribute to it. Like in the build phase, we have an opportunity to attribute what type of model and what type of values that we want to attribute to the various different design and mechanisms. But ultimately, if it becomes like we were talking about yesterday, in my viewpoint, it's like an, a digital arms race. If it becomes this arms race whereby people are just running ahead and trying to, you know, be the first to the first of the line, then it, it's yeah, the challenge becomes: Are we real, really building in and baking in those value systems that are going to be of benefit for humanity going forward? That's that's the risk factor for me. And I think you know, looking at at that. It's also beneficial to draw into the historical context here as well and look at how history has evolved in time to provide not just the evolution of tech, but like from your perspective, the evolution of history and how we've we've seen some of these plays previous to tech like play out in the in the past and how this might impact us going forward. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I was my mother, she's 78. And actually last night after I, I also spoke to you, she she called me and she said, well, I've been watching these episodes of uh, Life on Our Planet, which is this new Netflix series, so probably with David Attenborough. <laughs> and she said, I didn't know that life had been reset so many times on Earth. That's what she said to me. She said, I thought that the dinosaurs died from a meteor, but apparently they also died another time from a bunch of super volcanoes. And, and so, you know, apparently life has been reset like seven times on Earth. And we're just, you know, the seventh go around of, of this million of, of years of like cycle from, you know, from Amobe to, well, it's not entirely true, but from, from lower life forms to higher life. Forms. If you look at history, and I look at history a lot, especially for my keynote, because I try to impress on people the very unique nature of the moment we live in, you can get some feeling for how things might play out because obviously there are moments in time that seem reminiscent of what we're experiencing today, right? If you've been on social media lately, you might've seen the comparison between the fall of the Roman empire and, and the times we're living in now and that we might be facing the, the fall of our civilization. And yes, there's many signals that would suggest that something like that is taking place. If you think about it, it's really not so weird. 
I mean, everything seems to have a life cycle, right? And Plato himself spoke of the life cycle of democracy, for example, and how a democracy will be a young democracy and a mature democracy and then an, an elderly democracy and starts to, uh, to suffer from all kinds of ailments and finally collapses and dies. There's no reason to assume that we are an exception to those rules, right? We are part of the historical cycle. So then the question becomes, what's different this time around, right? What's different? What's different this time around versus how the dinosaurs came to their end? What's different this time around to versus how the Roman Empire came to its end? What's different this time around compared to the previous industrial revolutions, right? And then the simple answer, at least it seems simple to me, is that although these cycles keep repeating, there seems to be this exponential element to them which is very clearly indicated if you look at our own history. There's 12,000 years of recorded human history, even though our specific species of Homo sapiens has been around for 200,000 years. But it's only in the last 200 years that 99.9999% of all technology has been invented and created. Right? Everything we're doing right here is, is something of the past 200 years, which if you look at that in a percentage way, it's 2% of all of recorded history, and it's less than 0.01% of all of human history and it's probably 0.0000000001% of all of earth's history. So that's kind of remarkable, right? Because as far as we know there's never been anything like this. And our technology seems to be accelerating its own development, its own innovation. And artificial intelligence is a very clear culmination of that cycle, of that exponential trend. And Rene Kurzweil in his book, The Singularity is Near, called this the law of accelerating returns, which states that technology in and of itself actually accelerates the progress of new technology, its invention and its diffusion throughout the world and society and its impact on them. And I think that's a very important thing to take in mind because that, that specific thing makes this whole situation we're in extremely unique. Because that means that despite there have been seven times that life came and went on this planet, this is the first time in all of those billions of years that there is technology in the mix, which has seemingly been exponentially accelerating its own progress and its impact on the world. Yeah, definitely. And when we were talking yesterday as well about a book by Howe and Strauss called The Fourth Turning as well. And like they, they kind of point to these historical evolutions over a set period of like generally a 20 year cycle. So over an eight year mm. duration, you'll get a period of high awakening and unrevealing and then crises. But largely we've had a, you know, since the financial crash, for example, that should have been a reset moment, but it wasn't. We've just had a continued perpetuation of crisis that's occurred largely from a period of conflict, both national and transnational. And looking at that in respect to the rise of, as Moses Naim talks about, in respect to the three Ps of populism, post-truth and polarization, that's, you know, that's played out for all to see. We see it in the UK, we've seen it in America, we see it at like Argentina just electing a, their latest populist. And it's it's troubling times in respect to that narrative. And also from, from the other side is, yeah, it's 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 just interesting because there's so much conflict that's occurring within and I just feel that largely the world is a bit distracted away from the the, the longer plan and the, the larger impactful issue. And that is for me, that's the technological context. So they're missing this like larger transformer per se. So yeah, looking at like transformers, I'd love to get your insight in respect to that as well. Oh, you're really making these 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 little bridges uh, super, super smooth. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah, the transformer. Well, let's see. 
I, I guess like if, if we go back to, you know, where I finished the realization that we're in a very unique moment in time, because this is the first time that technology is having this kind of impact on the changes in the world. This is the first time in all of known history that we are a hyper-connected species. This is, there was no internet ever before. This is the first time that there's something like social media. This is the first time that something can happen at one place. Uh, part of the world and be instantly transmitted to another part of the world. This is the first time that billions of people have a voice that can be made publicly available for anyone to hear or see. And on top of that, we're now facing this revolution in artificial intelligence because of course, artificial intelligence has been something that's, you know, as an idea and as a science has been in one form or another been around for over a hundred years. So why is this particular moment so special now? I mean, basically, SEO, search engine optimization, is also a form of artificial intelligence. It's just narrow artificial intelligence, right? It's it's basically just algorithms. And AI is also algorithms. So why is this so special right now? Well, that's to do with, with the nature of the current model that's driving GPT and all of these other large language models. So that name already gives it away slightly. They're, they're large language models. And large language models are a form of neural networks, which is a technology which was actually already invented in the 80s. And Jeffrey Hinton and I think Jan LeCun played a significant role in that together. So why, but why is now different? Well, the, the funny thing, the thing that most people don't realize, I mean, if, if you ask anybody, you know, was there any internet in the 80s? Some people will even look at you and then have to think about it. But there was no internet in the 80s, you know, not for normal mortals like us. So that also means that the, the proliferation of data, as we know that today, digital data didn't exist, right? There also were barely any computers. I mean, you know, I'm sitting here behind three screens. You're probably sitting behind one or two screens, have a laptop. But the whole, I, you know, computers itself didn't really exist. So not only have we gone from, from an age in just a few decades from a place where everybody has multiple computers at home, if you include your smartphone. The other thing is that these computers have, over a very short period of time, become millions, if not billions of times faster, providing more computational power. The reason most people don't really realize the impact of that and, the, and why that is so incredible is because... They don't really feel like they've been working millions of times faster, <laughs> right? But that's because we have been upgrading the load that we give these computers, right? The computer at the end of the 80s just had a black screen and then four green symbols, right? That was it. If you wanted to generate any graphics on that, the best you could do was create a, a game of Pong with some, some green stuff, and that was it. And it would go slow. But now we're generating photorealistic worlds. For anybody that's been watching Lex Friedman's podcast and seen him talk to Mark Zuckerberg, we can generate photorealistic worlds with photorealistic people where it's becoming really, really hard to actually even see that it's not real. So that we've, we've increased our computational power by billions of times. We've increased the amount of data that we've created by billions of times. And now we have these large language models. And in 2017, we had this breakthrough called the transformer model, which is like an upgrade to these AI uh, models. And the thing that this does, and that is really mind blowing. If you sit down and you take a moment to consider it, is that the, the transformer model basically turned everything into language. And it allows us to translate anything. And when I say anything, I literally mean anything to anything. You don't need a Rosetta Stone. You don't need any kind of special key. This AI can figure out what is the pattern of data in one set, and then it can figure out what's the pattern of data in the other set. How do these patterns correlate and which coordinates in one set 
correlates with a coordinate in another set and then translate, which allows it to do things like translate, you know, whatever an elephant is saying to human language, to English, or from English to elephant, or it allows us to talk to whales, or it allows us to translate thoughts based on the neural activity in the brain, or it allows us to, man, I can't even, there's so, there's billions of ways this can be used. And one of the ways is to create an artificial general intelligence that basically has a consciousness like our own. And that's what they're doing. And we're not quite there yet, but we're getting really, really close. And when in the 90s, I would have never believed it would happen in my lifetime. But now I'm 100% certain that we will all be here for it. Yeah, I guess like it, it makes me think about how does technology challenge, or I guess like reinforce the idea of human exceptionalism. Because where we are at the moment is, you know, we, we've always had the the understanding or belief that we are like the superior species but you know looking at what what we're about to go into yeah i'd just love to get your take on human exceptionalism yeah this is this is really a, a core theme of mine as well when i started talking to people about what i foresee the future to be in terms of how technology will change society and uh, our economies and, and uh, literally our daily lives I found that people have this kind of kind of response where, you know, they might humor me to a certain extent. But as soon as I, I, I bring the conversation to anything that implies that humans might no longer be the pinnacle of creation, you know, the best at everything, they kind of just dismiss it out of hand. And I'm not and and when I started to think about this, I was like, why are we doing this? Why are people doing this? Is it is it fear? Is that it? And then I realized that I don't really think it's fear. Not so much. I mean, we know that a whale is bigger than us and we might feel fear, but we'll still try, you know, and hunt it. If this were a hundred years ago, we were whale hunters. We're still willing to get into an arena in Spain and fight a bull, even though we know it's, you know, it's it's much, much stronger than we are. So I don't think it's fear, even in in the face of intellectual strength from an AI, it's not fear. It's simply programming. If I may make that ironical statement, it's programming. Our programming, both are, you know, in our DNA, I think, as a result of, of, of natural selection, we believe ourselves to be superior to everything else. And on top of that, and, and potentially if, if the first part of what I just said is not actually true, and there's no proof of any kind of DNA programming that gives us the predisposition to feel superior, then at the very least, it's programming by hundreds, if not thousands of years of human religions and belief systems. Because think about it, Islam tells us that we're, we're God's creation. We're superior to everything. The whole world was given to us by Allah. Christianity, the same thing. The whole world was created for man, for Adam and Eve. And even women are inferior, in fact, to men to some extent, because women were created from, from the ribs of us, right? And then, you know, you can just keep going. Not all, of course, not all, but the far majority of popular religions in the world today and belief systems in the world today believe that man is superior, that we have the God-given right to rule this earth and everything in it should be inferior to us and serve us. So we've been programmed to believe us. But the science is showing us something completely different. Science shows us that, in fact, really, we are just one possible form of a multitude, infinite amount of forms that could be taken on an infinite spectrum of intelligence in an infinite infinite amount of possible realities. And so we are just a speck 
in 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 you know on the canvas that is that is reality and that is the universe and we just happen to be the first intelligent species on this planet or at least the first species on this planet to reach this level of intelligence and so it's it's really it's really just logic logically the next step that we will create something that will surpass us in every way it's really inevitable it's it's like the board and it's crazy because like I guess like this underlying arrogance that we have as a species is is led to a lot of the conflicts that we see throughout the world today, you know, in respect to economic crisis, in respect to crashing of economies. There's there's always this desire by a few to do things to the detriment of the many. And, you know, we one of the books I referenced yesterday when we were chatting because we were talking about like what what we be, what we believe led to Brexit and the, the chaos that is in fact Brexit and you know, there's one book that I pointed to, and that was by Jacob Rees-Mogg's dad called The Sovereign Individual. And, you know, that, that book was written in the, I think, 80s, early 90s. And, you know, that, that desire for this kind of crazy, ultra neoliberal world whereby, you know, remove all restraint, all, all, all governance, all guidance, all restrictions, and create this overarching opportunity whereby some may benefit at the, at the detriment of others. And, and we've, we've seen that playbook play out in respect to, you know, countries like the UK leaving the European Union and becoming this kind of very segregated, siloed entity, whereby, mm. again, like if we look at the the nation as a whole, um, we are we have debt as a percentage of GDP higher than a hundred. It's never been that level ever. We have people struggling to eat; they're struggling to heat their homes, and at the same time, we have a huge number of ultra well positioned people profiteering as an as a nation suffers and and it comes down to like that that greed that you know we deserve this or we're better than you and i think that that's kind of it's it's kind of short-termism playing out for yeah like their own benefit and and in the long run that that may play out to be detrimental like in respect to how people ultimately do push back like you, you when you look at periods of pain largely following the pain comes a period of reflection and comes a period of progress following that and you know when we all went into lockdown for example that's the greatest um, example of pain it was a shared collective pain that everybody mm-hmm. felt everybody went through and and it led to a lot of reflection and from the back end of that we're seeing some amazing companies and amazing um new businesses and an amazing new landscape being formed out of what what was the ashes of of, of chaos and yeah. i think equally it makes people question as to paradigms i've i've heard many a time a discussion point in respect to is is, is now the moment to shift away from milton freeman's <laughs> viewpoint of of capitalism and neoliberalism and um sure, surely we're in a moment of a paradigm shift and i i think that to be honest it's it's not necessarily going to be a paradigm shift as we saw from Keynes to Friedman, et cetera. It's not going to be like that moment. I think largely institutionally it will be led by groups such as OpenAI or even further down the line, um, bearing in mind the implications of what's happened with Sam going to Microsoft. There's an, there's an opportunity for Microsoft to lead the way, or is it going to be Google? But it, it's it's not necessarily going to be a economic model that will change the landscape. It'll be this 
overarching technological advancement that is going to make people question well you know do we do we need to you know if we're looking at the fact that some people may lose their jobs then what are the wider implications of that where's the welfare state how does that play out how do we support people um and the nations that will largely prosper and do well are the ones that at this moment in time are reflecting and going well how do we better support people through this transition because it's going to be it's going to be pretty pretty savage at moments but it'll be like like most most things it's there's positives and negatives on both sides so i'm interested to interested to see how that plays out because you know if you do go down the route of just total you know greed and carelessness then largely by the time this technological movement takes place and comes into light then yeah i do think that a lot of economies will be at risk unless they start to fail safe against their their, their people yeah um man so many thoughts about everything you said i'd say first and foremost i think that the transition that we are heading into is a storm unlike any we've ever seen and I don't think it will be a paradigm shift that will go by anywhere near as easy as we've seen previous paradigm shifts. I mean, I think compared to what's going to happen this time, the explosiveness and disruptiveness of it, the previous three, you know, three industrial revolutions will seem like, you know, walk in the park. The Enlightenment itself will seem like a walk in the park. The the French Revolution will seem like it was, you know, nothing. I really think that we're, what we're what we're looking at here is a complete and utter kind of implosion of the system itself and when i mean when i say the system i kind of look at it again from the historical perspective you could you could say you know, you know neoliberalism is you know maybe 100 years old right you could say capitalism is maybe you know 200 300 years old you could you could say that the foundation of these systems in one form or another is a few thousand years old right but the conclusion you'd have to come to then is that at least if you go back in recorded history, a few thousand years ago, I don't know exactly in what, what particular time, but we started, you know, we started making coins for the first time for empires, for kingdoms. We started to making currencies. And so the whole current system of that we use as far back as we can remember is one that is based in initially on initially trading goods, value for value. And then the next one was trading it for coin value for for product or service. And so we believe that this is the only kind of system we can have. We are convinced because this is all we've ever known that this is the only thing we can have. There has to be work put in, there has to be an effort made, and there has to be a return, and there has to be a profit because otherwise, you know, that's how we think, that's how everything's built. But if we look at the world around us, if we look at nature itself, it doesn't work necessarily that way. You know, trees don't make a profit and put that profit in the bank, right? It's not how it works. So the whole idea, and maybe this is not the best metaphor, but the idea that that is the 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 pinnacle of 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 economic systems is just a, that's a, an illusion, right? We just we had just happened to stumble upon, you know, the first you know few colors on a, on a spectrum that's infinite, and we haven't even tried any of the other forms or shapes because we haven't been able to discover them yet. We haven't invented them yet. And this is the kind of mindset that, that we need to keep in mind. But to get there, we first need to break out of our current illusion, our matrix, so to speak. We think that we are stuck in this system and it has to be this way. That's because we're comfortable there. At least we think we're comfortable. But what's coming now will, 
I'm pretty sure it's going to break everything. It's really going to break everything. So to come back to your initial mention of the sovereign individual, I haven't really read the book, but I, I have some idea of what it is about. So on the one hand, we're seeing, for example, technologies like Web3 that lead to decentralization, which is also a topic covered in the book, if I'm not mistaken. And I can see significant benefits to that. In fact, I would say that it's probably a necessity for the the future of digitized society. But on the other hand, I think that what what really is necessary right now is is almost like a step back. With the rise of the internet, we really lost, we, 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 we got out of touch with our, our humanity. On a two-dimensional internet that is created mostly around the content of our words, we lose a lot of our humanity because we don't have any of the nonverbal cues or communication that we evolved to use. Don't have any tone of voice. We don't have we don't have any pheromones. We don't have any smells or you know taste or any of, of those things. And so, I think that it's kind of a half reality. It's a, it's like a it's a, it's we're only seeing part of the equation there, and that's why it's not functioning. That's why it's creating this toxic environment. But now we're at this paradigm shift point where technology over the next few decades will be able to bring all of that humanity back into the technology. Also, while meanwhile, kind of transferring our consciousness to the next level, allowing us to to improve ourselves in ways that we could have never done if we were dependent on our biology or solely on our biology and our evolutionary process. So I think that what we're heading into is going to be a complete reset of everything that we know and and the re- and, and whatever is beyond that, it's just something that will be very hard for us to contemplate from this side of the mirror. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Yeah, I guess like some of the indicators that I look at from a paradigm shifting moment, and I, I agree, it's not going to be like a traditional ones that we've seen prior. It's going to be different, and let me explain why. I think looking at the landscape of the world around us at the moment, like with the rising population, like people living longer, etc., you'd see the difference, the variance between the different generations within the workplace versus those kind of the exiting the workplace. You also, you know, we talked about this yesterday in respect to how people consume their content and how they, they there's this interdependency upon technology. So when we look at things like the metaverse, when we look at things like Web3, a lot of people are kind of, you know, there's a lot of skeptics about the metaverse and saying, oh, well, that was a failed thing, but it, it really isn't. It's just like an iterative process. So akin to like when we saw the first iPhone come out, like, that didn't in in it its MVP. It didn't even have cut and pe- copy and paste. So now, like you know, we have all these different layers into it. But part of the an MVP is getting the minimal viable product out there and testing it within a marketplace. And mm. you know, you look at the marketplace today and like where do people go to um, for certain age groups to you know search and learn about things a lot of people are, are leveraging tiktok or youtube where you know we don't we don't traditionally go to newspapers to pick up our news we take it from an awful lot of um that diverse and different perspectives and different locations and it's not all you know if you're based in the uk you don't just read uk news you can take news from here there and everywhere and Equally, people are living out their lives in a digital form already. And when I say that, you know, we talked about digital fashion and the rise of money that go in in respect to digital fashion when we spoke yesterday. But then further to that is the advancement of tech again in respect to this augmented reality. So we see at the moment like Meta and Ray-Ban partnering up to create a first entry point, I would say, into a viable price point that you know it's two hundred dollars versus like Google's which is like three and a half thousand. So, you know, I know which one I'm gonna go for. And it's it's interesting to see how that's going to play out because, you know, like we are going to see this like synergy, this merger between digital and and reality and this mm-hmm. augmented reality in itself is gonna blow a lot of people's minds that um don't see this kind of moment coming but then equally when we do transactional exchanges in respect to money like when was the last time you had any money in your hands like we don't like i'm 40 now and my generations and the ones below none of us carry currency it's all it's all digital so in that respect when you look at larger economies that are propped up on a set currency um, with consistent turbulence, you know, like you, you have to doubt the dollar. You have to doubt the the the, the long term and the the strength of of the dollar. And when you you know we, we talked about yesterday, talking about like the rise of Bitcoin and and others. I'm not I'm not saying that that's going to be the the grand scheme, but I'm just saying that we have all of these different avenues in respect to how we engage how we connect with people how we kind of create communities in this augmented reality that we live within at this moment in time that that is going to be uh, the first focal points of a paradigm shift because it's a movement that's already taken place yeah 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I've spoken about this on LinkedIn and I think we spoke about it yesterday as well. Personally, I, th I think that we're seeing a convergence of, convergence of crises at the same time as we're seeing the rise of completely new paradigm shifting technologies. Some would say, you know, that's that's just coincidence. I, I, I think not. It's 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 almost like time has this tendency to kind of create these 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 convergences of 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 these kind of moments it's just like the the ripples in a pond right if you throw in different stones there will always be these intersection points where multiple uh, ripples actually uh, uh, strengthen each other and create like a little bit of a of a bigger wave and that's really what we're seeing seeing today these inference patterns and i think ultimately if you have enough time it's always going to happen we just happen to be lucky enough or maybe unlucky enough to be the ones living through one of those and when we when we bring it then back to our our own world the united states has been you know a superpower for as long as most of us can remember we've seen the longest period of relative peace in in human history after the second world war and our memories as human beings are extremely short which is why, for example, now you see Gen Z people in the streets uh, protesting for, for, for free Palestine and, and anti-Semitism on the rise again. A lot of this has to do with, uh, with the lack of, of, of memory that we have uh, as a species. And we've, of course, been reasonably successful in countering our, our lack of genetic memory or generational memory by providing education. Uh, but now we find ourselves in this time and age where the, the truth is something, this extremely fluid thing. You know, nobody's quite sure what it is because there's so many sources for, for information. And amongst all, amidst all of that, that uncertainty that that creates, that kind of, it, it, it undermines, you know, democracy and the nation state. And this kind of brings us back to the start of our conversation, that point where we are now, where are we at the end of, of, a, of a phase of a cycle of a civilization? And I think that's very much the case. And then when you look at the dollar, you know, the US dollar is the American currency. And although there's many more US dollars in the rest of the world than there are in the United States it's states itself, whatever happens to the United States will have an impact on what happens to the dollar because in people's minds, they are just inevitably related and connected. And of course, in the United States right now, people are not even so aware of it. But if you listen to television interviews like last week, tonight or something like that, uh, I think actually, was it the Tonight Show? I th or the, it was something like that. And there was, I think it was Bill Burr. And he was talking about going to the tent camps, to the to the tent cities. Just think about that. He just, this is a comedian that talks about going to the tent cities. Like it's something that people do every day. What he's referring to is that there's whole, whole blocks in cities like San Francisco, where and there's just homeless people living in tents. Like you couldn't even imagine this in a European country, but this is the, the new normal in the US. And once you let that really sink in, you realize how the US has gone from this absolute superpower where basically everybody lived in this very high level of comfort and wealth after the Second World War to now a nation where, you know, 10% of its, its population is actually uh, homeless. And they get no support from nobody and nobody gives a shit about them and people throw food at them. So this is, you know, the, the rest of the world feels this as well, which is, of course, why we're seeing a lot of conflict right now. We see other geopolitical powers testing the waters to see, you know, how far can we push it? What's going to happen? Will the dog, the dog just bark or will it actually bite? So the whole world is destabilizing. We have all these technologies on the rise. We have climate change. We have all these crises. 
you have a convergence like we've never seen before. And, uh, and, and, and once the first domino starts to fall, that's going to have a cascading effect to the whole system. Yeah. I think uh, it's, it's just, it's so intriguing because like, back to what we were talking about in respect to corporations there's there's no allegiance you don't you know in, in respect to where you you need to be attributed to now with things like transfer pricing and in respect to also the ability to work within a multitude of locations remotely or even from a global company the the desire and the need per se to be in, in a set location if you look at it from a governmental stance, if uh, if the rules and regulations are too stringent in respect to taxation, etc., then they they just they can up, up, up sticks and leave. And and in that respect, if you then have well, you know we saw it early doors this year in respect to the volume of people that are turfed out of of Twitter or X, but the the brand formerly known as Twitter, and uh, you know all of these mass exoduses of amazing talented people from companies that have the ability to just say well no there's, there's, you've got no rights and within many european nations there's things like workers time directive etc that you can kind of legislate for and mitigate against but in respect to america where you know this this has been a grand scheme to remove a lot of people's rights and well not really opportunities but rights per se then it leaves them so open to oh, yes. the, to to challenge. It's 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 crazy. Yes, I I think what's really quite remarkable when you come to think about it is that what we're seeing now is that actually what makes us us truly strong as humans is our ability to create communities. And this and and to create communities, we need to have a sense of empathy, a sense of belonging, and a sense of shared ideologies or or ideas, at the very least. And uh, this is also uh, the the problem with democracy. And I know that this is you know this has been uh, fortunately now it's becoming a little bit more acceptable to to discuss this. I mean, if if I'd said democracy, uh, you know, was not was not the end all and be all of political systems uh, 10 years ago, people would have probably lynched me in the streets against all uh, democratic <laughs> values. But today people are starting to see, because the thing with democracy is, you know, it gives a voice to everybody. And in that sense, you'd say, well, that's a good thing. But the problem is that ultimately those subcultures within any democracy start to drift. And uh, there will come a point where they drift so far apart that they no longer understand each other, feel no more empathy towards each other. And then you, get this kind of uh, Dutch we call it for sale it's like this this polarized kind of society right where you have all these different groups that don't want to have anything to do with one another and they don't want to cooperate they don't want to work together and this is kind of the anti-thesis to community and, and to, to 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 togetherness so after the second world war and actually part of what led to the first first and second world war was of course the sense of nationality Right, which gave rise to the name Nazis in in some way, and, and we we think of that as being bad, because that was kind of the other extreme of the book. Right, we were so so we had such strong communities, but because we started to go into this global world, these communities would war on each other. Well, really, that was just a continuation of us having our tribes. So it seemed like that was really bad, but now we're seeing the other end of that spectrum where. We're completely having societies and communities fall absolutely apart because of, there's nothing that binds them together anymore. There's no shared beliefs. There's no shared systems. 
you know, even things that seemed fundamental bedrock of society, we have men and women, it's now something that's up for grabs, you know, we're not even, we're not even on the same page on that anymore. And that just shows you the kind of crisis that we're in. Because ultimately for humans to be strong, to do the things that we did throughout the ages, like build incredible cathedrals and churches and, and nations and bridges and technology and go to the moon, that all resulted from us being community. That all resulted from us coming together, right? Even the space race, which seemed to be a battle between Russia and the US, ultimately brought the whole world together in this attempt to kind of push beyond the, the, the possible into the impossible to see, you know, what is the limit of, of what we can do. And, and right now we're in a moment in time where although we're pushing the boundaries of science and what's possible as never before, we're kind of also at this kind of identity crisis moment in time where we don't even know what it means to be human anymore. Where where do we belong? Who are we? What group are we a part of? Who are they? Who are we? You know, that kind of yeah. existential crisis in and of itself. I think personally, a lot of that's got to do with what we've seen over the course of the last, definitely the last 10 years. So in respect to Naomi Klein talking about disaster capitalism, for example, we look at Timothy Schneider talking about sadopopulism. You know, when you are attributing camps to people that are very polarized, then, you know, you have the rise of a sadopopulist that can say one thing to one camp, one thing to another. It doesn't matter if it's a, if it's a lie or the truth. Um, they, they can still say it, but then they are still willing to then go to that extent where they might have some pain themselves, but as long as the person that is their opposition at feeling the pain even more so, then they're willing to do that. So, you know, you end up seeing people rise to power that should get nowhere near power so uh, you know i'll give you an example for example like we, we in the uk we've had boris johnson who did an absolute shocker when it came to the um the covid covid response and we're seeing that at the moment in, in respect to the covid inquiry should have never ever ever got to prime minister he's so unfit for for government it's it's beyond belief then we had followed followed him um, Liz Truss, who lasted 48 days, crashed our economy. And now we have Rishi Sunak that like, is just not doing, not doing enough. We have lead. It's not necessarily critique on, on them. It's just more so a, a, an honest critique in respect to the turbulent times that we're in at the moment. Like now is a time for more calm heads in respect to mm -hmm. the, the challenges that are ahead. Because it's not all doom and gloom. It's, there is an awful lot of possibility and hope to be to be garnered from this moment. Because, you know, back to what I said before, like the pain plus reflection equals progress. We're out of that reflectory moment at this moment in time. And, and we will lead to progression going forward for, for people. But it's about getting back to the basics. It's about understanding mm -hmm. what our core values are. What is it that we want to attribute individually? What 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 our motives are, and and how that feeds into the communities that we serve, the the wider society, the businesses we work for, and holding people accountable to to those kind of pillars, and just say, well, mm. you know, if if you want objectivity, openness, transparency, etc., then these are going to be the values that are going to hold us not only strong as society, but also strong in respect to the emergence of, of future technologies. Because one thing we haven't talked about in, in this is, you know, the fact of when, when we do get, it's not just the advancement in respect to AI and, you know, the AGI, it's, it's the, it's the opportunity and advancement that we're seeing, such as in Boston with the Boston robotics and how quickly they've brought on 
robotics over the last like 10 years and and how that kind of increase and push for the advancement how that how that is potentially going to play out in wide society because the you know the rise of the robots it's it's not something like a terminator moment i, I, I don't believe it's it's going to be um, saving sarah connor but it's mm. it's it's ultimately something worth critiquing so i'd love to get a take yeah well actually you're bringing up some really a really good point but before i get into the rise of the robots because it ties in very well i'd like to take a step back and take a consideration today and this ties into what we just discussed today i posted on linkedin that i made a bit of a post i said which i i kind of played this scenario and it starts with so aragorn why do you think democracy is is an outdated model and should be and we should get rid of it that's what i posted right and then i went well this is why and i refer to the current situation in the political landscape in the Netherlands leading up to our coming elections. I think that the thing is that democracy doesn't function anymore because we have too many voices shouting against each other and it's just creating this kind of, you know, quagmire of, of ideas and of opinions and of interests that can no longer lead to anything coherent because all the powers are basically negating each other. As much as there's powers that want to go left, there's the same amount of powers that want to go right, and it's all just canceling each other out, and so we're going nowhere. We're stuck, right? Or to use another analogy from Plato himself, we're like a ship full of people, and everybody is a captain, and they're all trying to fight over you know, where to steer the ship and where to go, but nobody's up in the rigging, right? This is, this is where we are today in today's world. And so somebody asked me on LinkedIn, how do we solve this? And I didn't answer this there because I thought people would not take me serious, but I'll answer it here. It's not something that can be solved in the next, you know, one to five years, but it's definitely something that can be solved in the next two decades. And the reason for that is this. I believe that the true, the true solution forward is, first of all, to create an AGI, artificial general intelligence, and then to simply put that in control. We make that the new king. And that means that once it's in control, we are all, we can all vote. We can use like swarm intelligence technology, like Louis uh, Rosenberg is developing, for example, or some kind of future version of that. So every human being gets a say, we will be able to, to give input to this system, but ultimately the system will decide what happens. And once it has decided, we simply do, and we follow up, right? And the reason I believe that this is the only way forward is because humans will always be humans in our current shape and form. We will always be fallible. That means that if you have a human in control, then you can have be either lucky, you have a great king who is morally, you know, high standing and doing well, or you have a deplorable, indecent human who just takes advantage of everybody else to his own advantage. And ultimately, you always get human politics where they murder each other, even if you have the good ones. So we have to have something that is beyond all of that. I think that's the only way forward. Tying that back into what you'd started to discuss about robots, that future might seem very dystopic if humans are then left to do the labor, right? Because that would basically turn us into these few, <laughs> these, these kind of peasants in techno-feudalism where we have some kind of metal mind overlord that rules over us and we are just slaves, right? But that's not the future that we need to face at all. If we manage, and you know, I'm not discussing the the risks that Ilya Sutskifer that we discussed in his doc, you brought up his documentary on the Guardian. But I'm not, you know, there's significant risks to creating AGI, and there's significant hurdles to creating an AGI that has an aligned 
that is aligned with our best interest, right? That in and of itself is a, is a massive challenge. But let's assume for a moment that we can. I mean, so far in history, humans have been able to overcome any technological, any engineering challenge that you put in front of us. So why would we not be able to overcome this one? This is my thoughts on this, especially not if we have artificial intelligence, uh, capable artificial intelligence to help us along the way before we get to AGI. If we do that, then that would also mean that AI will start to inhabit the physical world through robotics, right? That's already happening today. We already have machines in Chile that are picking apples. That is a combination of AI and robotics. We have robots that can operate on an egg, cut it open, and sew it shut without a human interfering, except for giving it instructions by voice. All of this, and this is just the very, very earliest beginning. Over the next 10 years, I'm 100% convinced that we'll see a point where robots will take over the most complex jobs in the world, like surgery. I'm pretty sure that 15, 20 years from now, no human will be allowed to operate on another human for risk of, of you know, making mistakes. And it will all be done by, by robots that are far superior in that sense, um, unless there's no other choice. And I think it will go for many things like this. Many of the most complicated jobs in the world will be done by robots. So the real, the biggest challenge that faces us if we manage to survive the next two, three decades will be the, the question of how do we identify? How do we find purpose? What is it that that gives us meaning in this life? Because it will no longer be our job. And some people might think that that is a really scary thought, but it doesn't have to be. Because again, I'd like to remind everybody that even though for the past few thousand years, all humans have identified their own place in society and their purpose through their job, I'd like to remind people that before that, we spent hundreds of thousands of years not identifying through our job and living in perfect harmony with one another and having purpose in life. So I am 100% convinced that we can do this. We can find a new purpose, but the only difference will be that for the first time in the history of all of life, we will not just exist to survive, we will exist to thrive. I agree on the existing to thrive, but I don't, I don't agree on the um, the fact that we'll kind of hand over to AGI. And I think it's because of my underlying optimism in humanity. I do think that amidst all the the crisis that we see at the moment, um, we are seeing an evolution of community and garnering a wider movement of people that are moving beyond that kind of Simon Sinek start with why and then desiring legacy and impact. So when people ask and often go down the realm of purpose of having a consultancy within this very field and obviously a podcast as well that focuses largely on purpose and and working with some amazing companies i i can i do see the positive side of humanity and i, I look at that on the basis of when, when we look to pivot against some of the challenges that we've seen for the last like two decades for example we talked about say the populism we talked about um polarization etc um i do think that the pivot against that is clarity, conviction, and values. And I think when you start to communicate more clearly to your communities as to what you stand for and believe in, then people largely gravitate towards you, but you have to be consistent. And it's a it's a longer path rather than this kind of short-termist that we've seen over the last 20 years specifically. It's a longer path towards more 
um, longer term aspiration. So it's not necessarily about here and now. It's about cultivating more future conscious thinking and behavior for future generations. So we become the ancestors our future descendants need. And it's more so about what do we do today and what do we make sure that we do today that isn't going to detrimentally impact them going forward? And because of that, I do, I, I do see a rise of new types of leaders, ones that are very future focused and ones that are very stoic in their thinking and a desire to implement some of the changes. Like Gordon Brown wrote an amazing book called The Seven Ways to Change the World. And if you if you look at that, like the opportunity we have within AI and especially as the techno technology advances, it, it comes down to the fact that a lot of the mundane tasks that have caused a lot of our gaze to be fixed upon for far too long, the mundane tasks I do think will be removed and they'll, they'll be done largely by um, AGI as we move forward. I do agree like the advancement of tech will allow for advancements within healthcare, et cetera. I think that that's a really interesting play and in how that might play out. But at the same time, I just think from the human evolution, it'll elevate us to another another level, something that is more uh, holistic in, in our viewpoints and perspective. I may be wrong, but then that's the beauty of, of, of being in the present. It, it, there's, we have the opportunity to dictate and narrate that narrative of what the future may hold. And, and for me, it's, it's, more, it's one more of balanced. It's one, one more of um, consciousness and it's, it's one whereby the future is, is what we make of it and it's not necessarily something that is going to be over, overpowering, but ultimately, like this is what we talked about yesterday about being in, in an age of education. Like, this is the moment to understand the world around you. This is the moment to educate your, yourself on technology. This is the moment to really stand for something Otherwise, you'll fall for anything, and, and we'll get that going forward. Um, you know, we haven't mentioned it at this moment in time, but like next year, there's going to be some crazy amounts of elections taking place, and we're going. You know, I think you posted something about what's happening in in um, the Dutch elections in respect to misinformation. Yeah, I did. Like people yeah. have to, well, people have misinformation yet, but yeah, yeah, but people have to like have an opportunity at this moment in time to to critique and understand that, okay, if this is the evolution of technology, then what I see initially with my eyes may not be truth. So I need to remember that when, when I'm deciding on that ballot paper, who I want to vote for, because you're not voting for necessarily what you see in the here and now. It's more so what values that you want to attribute to the people that you're going to put in positions of power. And how closely do they align to your value system and what what are the policies it's all like it's not the it's not the noise that we see today it's the stoicism it's a, it's a calm it's the ability to to look a little bit more holistically of what uh, what's the opportunities ahead how closely those value systems align to our own and ultimately what do we want the future to to hold and if it's something more optimistic more open transparent then you know we have we all have an option next year to decide yeah i really i really i really wanted to be the way you're laying it out and i really hope that that will be the case but right now i really think that we're, we're just not going to see that yet i think we're in for a massive amount of disruption and unrest civil unrest even civil wars in some parts of the world a lot of conflict. I think that what we see now with the Palestine protests and, and some some places, you know, that 
turning into something more violent or more ugly. Um, I think that's only the beginning. As I think we're going to see a lot, a lot more of that because the thing is that no matter how much I love my own freedom to be able to have this podcast with you and express my opinion and post about it on LinkedIn, that is really also the problem right now because everybody, I posted this a few times a day, but every buffoon, every buffoon with an opinion has a megaphone right now and can talk to the world. And there's no kind of baseline of, of truth. There's no... No common ground right now for people. This is, you know, it used to be like when my parents, my parents were from 44 and 45, but my parents went to school in the fifties, right? They might have some kind of priest or, 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 or a sister in front of class, a nun, and they might be stupid or, or bad people or whatever, or, or not. But what they said was the truth. And if you didn't agree with that, they'd slap you with, with a stick, right? And that was it. That was it. There was no, there was no, you know, having, no, I, I don't agree. And I think you're not woke enough or any of that nonsense. Hell no. And although that seems maybe to some people like this horrible kind of time to live in, it created a sense of unity. And I think that over the past decades, we've been breaking down everything, every system, every kind of mechanic that provides a sense of unity and, and, and that provides a sense of single-mindedness to people, to nations, to communities. We've been breaking all of that down. And social media has been probably the worst at that because it gives everybody the freedom to have an opinion, but it also gives everybody the opportunity to find that fringe community anywhere in the world, right? If you were, if you were a nut in a village <laughs> 60 years ago, and then you were the nut in the village and everybody would tell you to shut up. Right. But if you're not today, you go on the Internet and you find another hundred thousand nuts from around the world. And even though it's an infinitesimal amount, a statistically irrelevant amount of people in, in terms of the population of the earth, these hundred thousand nuts, they all convince to each other. They all help each other again, be convinced of the fact that they're actually not nuts, but they're right. And they should do something about it. And that's the problem with today's world. The problem is that you and me are free to express our opinion. And no matter how hard we try to share our vision of the truth and our belief in science and the way forward, there's just as many nuts out there that are saying something else, creating confusion, disbelief, you know, and, and dissonance in, in people's sense of reality. And, and this is the problem. And if we cannot fix this, then we're not going to be successful. I, th I we think need you, to fix that. I think on that, on that respect, though, it comes down to moments and movements. Like people that kind of quite short-termist you can see that they create moments and people are long-term focused they galvanize movements and that's that's the difference in where i think that we're going to head i think that ultimately there is going to have to be more of a an alignment of maybe like another block i know that like when you look at the eu for example and the challenges that we face there when we look at um the advancement of tech or how the next thing i want to go on to is, is your viewpoints of what the next decade may hold but looking at the next decade for example there's so many different challenges like if you want to pick gordon brown's example of the seven most pressing challenges around the world they don't get solved by silo nations. They don't get solved by individuals. They get solved by collectives. So we need to get back to that consensus. You are inviting in groups of people, groups of nations towards a common goal, which is let's 
let's fix these problems. Let's actually be the be the generation that solve those problems for future generations. So you know things like poverty become a thing of the past. And if you look at that, then I do think that there's an, a lot more hope and optimism in respect to the the road ahead because it goes back to that value thing that I said before in respect to attributing values to people, like people that are kind of here, there, and everywhere in this kind of moments of 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 noise that they put across they're not consistent so when you we can easily pick apart somebody that is of limited values because they're not consistent in their viewpoints that they they're not looking to achieve goals that are bigger than themselves they're looking just for short-termist desires and people are growing knowledgeable about that yeah you do see like blips in the system for example you know like it, it it puzzles me as to why Argentina end up with a populist, but you know, in in other sides, you you see you know a desire to to work as a collective to come together to to fix some of the world's most pressing problems that we face. And uh, uh, yeah, I'm just I'm glass half full type of character. I see the 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 next decade is as something that first and foremost we need to educate ourselves, but secondly. What is it that we want to do? Because like technology now, as we as we move forward, has the opportunity to allow us to remediate these issues. And beforehand, it was so mind-bendingly difficult to um, fathom as to how we're going to come to even solving global poverty. But now we could, we have the mechanisms, we have the technologies, we have the structures, we have a desire, and that kind of back to Louis Rosenberg, we have the ability to work like a swarm intelligence together towards a collective goal. And that's, that's what fills me with optimism. I think that, you know, the ability to work as a collective akin to nature, akin to swarms in nature, how, how that's kind of led, I think we're going to see similar within humanity. Like it's not going to be, excuse me, it's not going to be one of these um, times of, times in our history where it's going to be easy because there's going to be an awful lot of pushback. But ultimately, it's a desire for people to reflect upon all this kind of collective turbulence that we've been through the, over the course of the last like 10, 20 years and go, you know, what what is it that we want? Because if we all attribute that we want more value from from our lives and also we want more impact and, and, a, and a larger legacy of, of positivity uh, and you know impact within the world then we will end up in a in a in a place where everything is so much clearer um, and that that's that's what fills me with hope and optimism i'm not going to say it's going to be super easy because as as i about to pass over to you to talk about the next like what your views for the the next decade is going to be it's it's going to have some significant challenges but yeah people just need to be educated at this moment in time and not be over overwhelmed by the change but kind of be ready to ride that way that sea of change yeah first first and foremost I'm I'm not a pessimist. I am an optimist. Maybe because I'm in the call with a bigger optimist. I seem like a pessimist, but generally speaking, I'm an optimist. Uh, I think we're going to make it through. Uh, I just don't want to, or let me put it differently. I want to manage expectations for people. You know, getting to the win, getting to a victory, does, you know, it's not just walking across the field, right? <laughs> you have to play the match. And we're about to have to play the match. And this is going to be the match of the century or the match of uh, the match of of all of our, you know, human existence, the biggest one yet. That's just how I view this. And and some players are going to be, 
you know, send off the field or lost along the way. There's going to be collateral. There's just no, no doubt about that, I think. And, and we need to be realistic about that. Coming to back to what you said, you said it, it requires a movement, right? Real change requires a movement. I also think that's true. The thing is that if I look at history, I think that there's been this kind of problems and challenges as they arose it used to be on a much smaller scale, right? 12,000 years ago, the problems that arose would be on the scale of the village, yeah. right? The hunter-gatherers locally would would realize that there was a tiger stalking the woods and they'd have to remedy this or they'd have to find a, a new place to, to hunt herds because the herd of, of moose or whatever they were hunting or, or mammoths was thinning in the place they were. These were local issues and they could be solved locally. And then... As we went through history, our communities grew. We went from tribes and villages to cities and nations, and the problems became bigger. The problems became problems of a nation, but because we are homo sapiens, we not only are very intelligent, but we also can communicate. And so we managed to create superstructures that allowed us to act with communities where even the members on one side had no idea of the existence of the members on the other side. But within the nation itself and within the rules and systems we created, we were able to collaborate and tackle these problems. But every time, if we had bigger problems to solve, we solved them because our communities grew bigger and we were collaborating together. We collaborated across villages, we collaborated across cities, we collaborated across nations. But we're now in this point in time where our troubles, our challenges are global. There is no doubt about this. Climate change is a global global crisis. Uh, the migration that will result from that will put economic stress on every nation in the plan on the planet. Um, artificial intelligence is also a global thing. Technology, wealth and inequality are now global issues. The food supply is a global issue. The problem, however, is that we've not grown into a global nation. We're still fractured and fragmented. We still have countries in Africa that are poor, and we have countries in South America that are a little less poor, and then we have countries like the U.S. where we're extremely rich, but we can. But in none of these places, even these places themselves, due to the internet and social media, for a big part, we can no longer find consensus on anything. Let alone that we can find consensus and a and that we can found a global community and a movement as a whole to come to, to, to really change things. I mean, even right now, look at the climate community, the climate movement. This week or last week, Greta, von, uh, Greta Thunberg was in the Netherlands and she was speaking to a climate march. And in the middle of her speech to the climate march, she started to rant about Palestine and giving her view on that political issue. And then another man came on stage, a Dutch man. He took the microphone out of her hand and he said, I am not here to talk about your political view. I'm here for climate change, right? So there you go. Even this community, even this movement itself is now being fractured by another crisis we have to tackle. And I think this is this is really the challenge. And you already mentioned Louis, Louis Rosenberg and his uh, swarm uh, in uh, technology and intelligence technology. I think this is one of these technologies that has the potential to solve this problem. The problem is that the only way to kind of come to a point where we will all be willing to agree globally that something needs to be done might very well require a calamity of, of catastrophic size and global, global impact. And that's something that I'm a little worried about because I really don't see how we're going to get there from where we are right here. That doesn't mean it's impossible. We have incredible technologies and their potential is growing every day, but but something has to give somewhere. We need to kind of realize that we're all in this together. We need to somehow get this realization that, that we're just 8 billion 
meat maggots on a, on a blue spaceship flying together and that if we don't help each other out, we're going to be lost. And I, I feel that right now, I don't really see how, how that's going to happen. I know it's going to happen over the next two, three decades. I know it's going to happen. I just don't know how. And I'm a little afraid of what the how will look like. Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's worthwhile, you know, we, we've mentioned about Swarm AI, but um, there's a couple of more things I want to kind of touch upon before we close out. And I think like the first thing is is super intelligence, looking at that kind of whole cosmos, cosmic endowment. I'd love to get your viewpoint on that. And then obviously so, some people won't know anything about singularity, but I think that's that's worthwhile touching on as well before we finish off with some key thoughts and takeaways. Yeah, so the cosmic endowment is this term from, well, is it from physics? I'm not even sure. Well, it's definitely a term that's being used a lot in the artificial intelligence realm when you're discussing super intelligence and the future of humanity. It's something that Ray Kurzweil talks about, it's something that Nick Bostrom talks about. It's this idea that when considering options in the now and what path to take, Basically, everything that lies before us are, are f complete potential in the universe, right? That's the cosmic endowment, right? So what you and me might not be around, but humanity might, if we make the right choices, be around for another million or millions of years. And in those millions of years, we might transcend to a different state of consciousness. We might digitize ourselves. It doesn't matter. It might still or will still be humanity that is around, and that humanity might come to colonize the whole universe right in fact we might we might become one with the universe i know this sounds like crazy but that is what the cosmic endowment is it is that all of our potential futures all of them all of that we might achieve that is still unrealized the complete unrealized the future potential of humanity is the cosmic endowment and so that's really important uh, the decisions that we make now might have an impact on that cosmic endowment right if we develop an artificial intelligence that significantly hampers our potential or our ability to reach our full potential, then we are also risking our cosmic endowment. Actually, Toby Ort wrote an incredible book on this uh, called The Precipice, where he discusses the nature of existential threat that we're faced with in today's age and going forward also with AI and AGI. So that's that. The singularity has a lot to do with that as well, of course, because the singularity is this idea, this proposed idea, which I think uh, started with von Neumann, and then it was reiterated by Ving, Werner Vinge in the, in the 90s, and then picked up by Ray Kurzweil uh, in his book, Spiritual, the, the Age of Spiritual Machines, and then the singularity is near. It's this idea that the exponential nature of technological progress leads to this point in time where the progress compared to today's pace is literally as good as vertical. Right. And so beyond this point, it's like an event horizon of a black hole. Everything is sucked in. So we can see the black hole as we're approaching it. But once we get to the event horizon, we can't see beyond it because no light can escape. Right. No, nothing from that potential future can escape to us because we cannot read any signals that might give us any indication of what it will be like, because there will be such a different set of 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 rules that guide that govern that kind of existence just like inside of a black hole all of physics basically breaks down and we don't really know well that's not we don't really know what's going on and so this is the singularity and 10 years ago you know there was maybe two or three scientists in the world that took this seriously and then there was a bunch of nutcases like me who were fans of Ray Kurzweil who thought that this was going to happen 
And uh, But now we find ourselves in 2023 and suddenly there's uh, scientists all over the world that are starting to take the whole idea of, uh, of its technological singularity very serious in the face of artificial uh, intelligence and artificial general intelligence as it might be the most significant technological advancement to create such a singularity in our future. And I think that's going to happen. I, I think that bar some calamity in the next two decades that wipes out all of humanity all at once, if even if only a few of us can survive with our technology intact, then there will be a human technological singularity that will propel our consciousness into the, the cosmos to expand at the speed of light at some point. The, the, the question is how many of us are going to be there to, uh, how, how many of us are going to survive? Or in the terms of Altered Carbon, one of my favorite series and book series, uh, how many of us will actually turn out to be meths? Just going back to the very beginning, do you think that that's kind of one, the singularity was maybe one of the things that led to what occurred within OpenAI over this past weekend? And no, I, I, I know that theory has been going around, but I highly doubt that. I mean, if we, you know, I believe that all of this is going to happen and people say, still say, Aragorn, you're crazy, right? This is impossible, intractable. It's never going to happen so fast. And now there's more people that believe that it will happen. But even, you know, you have to remain reasonable. You have to be, remain logical, right? What happened this weekend doesn't change the speed at which this technology is being developed right now. If AGI had been achieved, then I don't even think that what happened at OpenAI would have taken place the way it did. That first of all, but apart from that, it's just intractable. I mean, AI, AGI could happen, you know, five years from now. It could happen 10 years from now. It could happen 20 years from now. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm sure that it will happen within the next two, three decades, but it is extremely unlikely. I mean, it's possible. It's not impossible, but the probability of it having happened recently and the probability of us being near that singularity is just very, very low. It's like a statistical extremely low chance. It's like one in a million. So I just don't think that that's the case. Would be would be really surprising. Would, I mean, the chances of a meteor hitting the Earth right now and killing all of us is probably higher than that. Man, I could talk to you all day. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been awesome. <laughs> um, just to close out, though, like, what would be your lasting message that you'd like to leave with our audience? You need to care about facts. You need to care about facts. You need to care about how you gather knowledge and how you verify it. And you need to make sure that you're always on top of the newest developments in terms of technology. And what I mean by that is that 10 years ago, you know, if a new mobile phone came out or a new operating system, you know, if you didn't want to care about that, that's fine. That was up to you. But in the world that we live in today, if, if a new version of ChatGPT comes out and you're not actually trying it, you're, you're, you're going to do yourself a massive disservice. And the, the downsides of, of being disinterested in this kind of development in the world and di disconnected from where the, this is going will increase exponentially over the next decade. And the thing is that once you're behind, the longer you wait to catch up, the harder it'll be, right? It's like when you don't go to the gym. Every day that you're not going to the gym, it becomes harder to go back to the gym and, it becomes, and the journey to catch up will be more significantly hard. It's like that, but times a million. So... If you really want to be prepared for what's coming, it's not enough, you know, to to just follow the news. You got to be using it yourself. And I know that for for me, that's easy to say. I'm a 40 year old bachelor. I live on my own. I can do anything I like with my time. Basically, somebody who has uh, you know two or three kids and a family and a full time job and too much rent, 
they'd probably be like, well, Aragorn, I just can't. I can't. And I know that unfortunately there will be a lot of people that can't. But for those of you listening that can, even if you can just make, you know, five minutes a week for this, do it because you will ultimately be grateful that you did when the time comes and you and things are starting to shift and you just happen to be able to make a really important decision one day faster than somebody else because you understand the nature of what's coming definitely do what you can't until you can exactly thank you very much it's been a pleasure man it's it's been an absolute pleasure we filled an hour and a half it's crazy hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.